are apparently players in the cosmic drama. And in this particular act of the cosmic drama, we hold a very central role. We are at the uh, pinnacle of the complex of the expression of complexification in the animal world. And somehow this complexity which is concentrated in us has flowed over out of the domain of animal organization and into this mysterious domain which we call culture, language, consciousness, higher values. Each stage of advancement into complexity occurs more quickly than the stage which preceded it. After the initial Big Bang, there was a period of billions of years when the universe cooled, stars condensed, planetary systems formed, and then the quickening process crossed an invisible Rubicon into the domain of animal and biological organization. Well, you see, since the since uh, the rise of Western monotheism, the human experience has been marginalized. We have been told that we were unimportant in the cosmic drama. But we now know from the feedback that we're getting from the impact of human culture on the earth that we are a major factor shaping the temperatures of the oceans, the composition of the atmosphere, the general speed and complexity of speciation on the planet, so forth and so on. A single species, ourselves, has broken from the ordinary constraints of animal nature and created a new world, an epigenetic world, meaning a world not based on gene transfer and chemical uh, propagation and preservation of information, but a world based on ideas, on symbols, on technologies, on tools, on ideas. Downloaded out of the human imagination and concretized in three-dimensional space as choppers, arrow points, particleological organization. Well, you see, since the since uh, the rise of Western monotheism, the human experience has been marginalized. We have been told that we were unimportant in the cosmic drama. But we now know from the feedback that we're getting from the impact of human culture on the earth that we are a major factor shaping the temperatures of the oceans, the composition of the atmosphere, the general speed and complexity of speciation on the planet, so forth and so on. A single species, ourselves, 
has broken from the ordinary constraints of animal nature and created a new world, an epigenetic world, meaning a world not based on gene transfer and chemical uh, propagation and preservation of information, but a world based on ideas, on symbols, on technologies, on tools, on ideas downloaded out of the human imagination and concretized in three-dimensional space as choppers, arrow points, particle accelerators, gene sequencers, uh, spacecraft, what have you. All of this uh, complexification occurring at a faster and faster rate. And this brings me then to the second uh, quality or phenomenon that science has overlooked, which is the acceleration of complexification that the early history of the universe preceded with excruciating slowness. Then life took hold in the oceans of this planet. process and evolution, but still things proceeded on a scale of tens of millions of years to clock major change. Then the conquest of the land, higher animals, higher exposure to radiation, faster change, species following species one upon another. Then uh, 50,000, 100,000, a million years ago, anyway, recently, the crossover into the domain of culture, tool-making, myth-making, dance, poetry, song, story, uh, and that set the stage for the, the fall into history, the incredibly unusual and self-consuming process that has been going on for the past 15 or 20,000 years. A biological snap of the finger. And yet, in that time, everything that we call human, everything that we associate with higher values, has been adumbrated, elaborated, created, set in place, by one species, ourselves. This acceleration of time or complexity shows no sign of slowing down. In fact, within the fabric of our own lives, we can almost daily, hourly, by the minute, feel it speeding up, taking hold. It's a cliche that time is moving faster and faster, a cliche of the mass media. But I want to suggest that this is not uh, a, a perceptual illusion or a cultural mirage, that this is actually happening to the space-time matrix, that time is in fact speeding up, that history in which we are embedded because our life of 50 to 80 years is so ephemeral on a scale of 10 to 15,000 years. But nevertheless, history is 
a state of incredible destabilization. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a chaostrophy in the process of happening. It begins with animals kept in balance by natural selection, and it ends with a global internet of electronic information transfer and a language using species hurling its instruments toward the stars. There is no reason for us to suppose that this process of acceleration is ever going to slow down or be deflected. It has been a law of nature from the very beginning of nature that this acceleration was built in. What poses a problem to us as thinking individuals is that the speed of involution toward concrescence is now so great that we can feel the tug of it within the confines of our own lives. There has been more change since 1960 than in the previous several thousand years. There has been more change since 1992 than in the previous thousand years. Change is accelerating. Invention, connection, adumbration of ideas, mathematical algorithms, connectivity of people, social systems. This is all accelerating furiously and under the control of no one not the Catholic Church, the Communist Party, the IMF, uh, uh, no one is in charge of this process. This is what makes history so interesting. It's a runaway freight train on a dark and stormy night.
satanic abuse your parents laid on you, so forth and so on. The, the model which I like is a geometric model and says simply that since the rise of the Greek alphabet, print, linear thinking, and science, we have become imprisoned in a causal universe of material connectivity, and that this is a cultural myth as much as believing that we are the sons and daughters of, of uh, the great father who got out of his canoe at the second waterfall to take a leak. I mean, these are just cultural myths. Uh, what is revealed through the psychedelic experience, I think, is a higher dimensional perspective on reality. And I use higher dimensional in the mathematical sense. Literally, you are lifted out of the plane of cultural assumptions and can look down with the kind of godlike understanding that one obtains when one flies in an airplane over a landscape previously only viewed from the ground. In other words, from the vantage point of the psychedelic experience, the cultural landscape is seen more nearly in its correct perspective, seen as historically bounded, spatially and intellectually bounded. Now, it's no coincidence that if you analyze biology, what it is, it's a kind of conquest of dimensionality. The earliest forms of life were probably slimes of some sort, stabilized on a clay surface, immobile, unable to perceive light, with no sense of time, merely a, a fingernail or a toehold in existence. And then if you look at the entire fossil record, what you see is the evolution of senses, sensory perceptors and organs of locomotion. The perceptors, the eye, the hand, bring into the cognitive field the sense of things at a distance. And then language provides models for these things at a distance. Similarly, fins, legs, so forth, means of locomotion, carry us through space. This is a journey of dimensionality. And essentially what animals are that plants are not are life forms mobile, in a very conscious way in the spatial dimension. This is why, from the point of view of evolutionary biologists, animals are somehow more advanced than plants. Well, if conquest of dimensionality is the um, criteria, then notice that we again occupy a special and privileged position in nature because we can not only run with the best of them, see with the best of them, but we can remember and anticipate like crazy. And other animals are not doing this. Other animals may imprint past situations of danger or opportunity, 
but they do not analyze experience and extrapolate it toward the hidden domain of the future. And consciousness is the generalized word that we use for this coordination of complex perception to create a world that draws from the past and builds uh, a model of the future and then suspends the perceiving organism in this magical moment called the now, where the past is coordinated for the purpose of navigating the future. McLuhan called it driving with the rearview mirror, and the only thing good about it is it's better than driving with no mirror at all. All right, now. What this conquest of dimensionality comes to be in the presence of psychedelics is an anticipation of the future. We can anticipate the future. We know to within microseconds when the sun will rise. We know within a few percentage points where the prime rate will be in six months. Some things we can predict fairly closely, some things with less precision. But the perception of the future is very important to us. When we marry the need to perceive the future with the psychedelic experience, I believe we come up with uh, data that is very, very difficult for science to come to terms with. And this is the third item, or, or really the second item in the list, what science forgot. It's what I call the eschaton. Now, eschaton is a rare word, uh, until very recently unheard outside schools of theology, which I understand were a dying enterprise. Uh, eschaton comes from the Greek word esk, which just means the end. The eschaton is the last thing, the final thing. And it's very important to science eliminate from its thinking any suspicion that this eschaton might exist, because if it were to exist, it would impart to reality a purpose, you see. If the eschaton exists, then it's like a goal, or an attraction point, or an energy sink toward which historical process is being moved. And science is incredibly hostile toward the idea of purpose. If you are not involved in the sciences, this may come as somewhat of a surprise to you. If you are a workbench scientist or a theoretician, you know that this is what's called the problem of teleology. It is because uh, modern science defined itself in the 19th century when the reigning philosophy was deism. And deism was the idea that the universe is a clock made by God, and God wound this clock and has walked away from it, and the clock will eventually run down. 
that theological construct was poisonous to evolutionary theory in the 19th century. And so they said, we must create a theory of reality that does not require a goal, does not require a purpose. Everything must be pushed from the past. Nothing must be pulled toward the future. Uh, the problem with this is that it does not um, fulfill our intuitions about reality. We can see that evolution, biological evolution, has built on chemical systems. We can see that social and historical systems build on biology. As people with open minds, or as open as they can be inside this culture, we nevertheless have this intuition of purpose. And it is uh, dramatically underscored by the psychedelic experience, which takes the raw material of your life, your culture, your history, and tells you this is not an existential mishmash to be lived out with dignity because there's nothing else to be done with it, some kind of Camusian why not affirmation. It says no. It says, you know, your, your reality is a coherent cosmos and embedded in your own sense of identity, embedded in your own sense of purpose, is a microscopic reflection of the larger purpose that is built into the universe. Now, I, and I, this is not just, you know, blowing smoke in the sense of it's a nice idea or it's like a religious idea like saying Jesus loves you and so feel all right about yourself. It isn't like that. It's, it's a theory about reality that has teeth because reality is actually following the script that this particular version of reality dictates. Reality is accelerating toward an unimaginable omega point. We are the inheritors of immense momentum in our social systems, our philosophical and scientific and technological approaches to the world. Because we're driving the historical vehicle with a rearview mirror, it appears to us that we're headed straight into a brick wall at a thousand miles an hour. It appears that we are destroying the earth, polluting the atmosphere, wrecking the oceans, dehumanizing ourselves, robbing our children of a future, so forth and so on. I believe what is in fact going on is that we are burning our bridges one by one. We're burning our bridges to the past. We cannot go back to the mushroom-dotted plains of Africa or the canopied rainforests of five million years ago. We can't even go back to the era of, of uh, uh, Cayuse and Six Shooter of 200 years ago. We have burned our bridges. We are preparing for a kind of cultural forward escape. And this question, you know, is there cause for optimism? The answer is it depends on where you placed your bets. 
you know? If you placed your bets on uh, male-dominated institutions based on consumer fetishism, propaganda, classism, and materialism, then God help you, you should call your broker. If, on the other hand, uh, you've recognized that a, a lifeboat strategy is involved here, that what is really important is uh, empowering personal experience, backing off from consumer object fetishism, freeing the mind, empowering the imagination, then in that case, I think you can feel pretty good about what is going on. You know, there's a lot of talk about cultural uh, uh, death and disenfranchisement, and it's usually couched in terms of some happy naked people in the rainforest or in Tajikistan making their rugs or milking their camels or something. And isn't it too bad that their culture is being blown up and traded in for mall culture and, uh, and uh, shopping by uh, remote? But in fact, all culture is being destroyed. All culture is being uh, sold down the river to the, by the sorts of people who want to turn the entire planet into an international airport arrival concourse. And that's not the victory of somebody's culture over somebody else's culture. Nobody ever had a culture like that. That's just a cult, the victory of schlockmeisterism and crapola over good taste and good sense. Well. If I were, um, if I were dependent on the notion that human institutions are necessary to pull us out of the ditch, I would be very despairing. As I said, nobody's in charge, not the IMF, the Pope, the Communist Party, the Jews, no, 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 nobody has their finger on what's going on. So then why hope? Isn't it just a runaway train out of control? I don't think so. I think the out of controlness is the most hopeful thing about it. After all, whose control is it out of? You and I never controlled it in the first place. Why are we anxious about the fact that it's out of control? I think if it's out of control, then our side uh, is winning. When I say that love isn't something we invented, it's me observable, powerful, and It has to mean something. Maybe it means something or something we can't yet understand. Maybe it's some evidence, some artifact of a higher direction that we can't and, consciously you know, perceive. Sometimes I've talked to many of you about psychedelic plants, shamanism, techniques, chemistry, approaches, and so forth and so on. I'm approaching this this evening as a graduate seminar. I figure everybody has their little mojo kit and their particular way of approaching these things.
bang. Now let's give this a little attention here. This is the notion that the universe, for no reason, sprang from nothing in a single instant. Well, now before we dissect this notion, now notice that this is the limit test for credulity. Whether you believe this or not, notice that it is not possible to conceive of something more unlikely or less likely to be believed. I mean, I defy anyone. It's just the limit case for unlikelihood that the universe would spring from nothing in a single instant for no reason. I mean, if you believe that, my family has a bridge across the Hudson River that will give you a lease option for $5. Uh, it, it makes no sense. It is, in fact, no different than saying, and God said, let there be light. And what the philosophers of science are saying is, give us one free miracle, and we will roll from that point forward from the birth of time to the crack of doom, just one free miracle, and then it will all unravel according to natural law and these bizarre equations which nobody can understand but which are so holy in this enterprise. Well, I say then, if science gets one free miracle, then everybody gets one free miracle. And I perceive that it is true when you build these large-scale cosmogonic theories that you have to have a kind of an umbilical cord or a, or a point to start from that is different from all other points in the system. So if we have to have a singularity in our modeling of, of what reality is, let's make it as modest and as non uh, uh, unlikely a singularity as possible. The singularity that arises for no reason in absolutely empty space instantly is the least likely of all singularities. Doesn't it seem more likely, if we have to have a singularity, that it occurs in a domain with a rich history, with many causal streams feeding in the situation that nurtures the complexity. In other words, to put it simply, if you have to have a singularity, doesn't it make more sense to put it at the end of a cosmogonic process than at the beginning? And I think this is the great breakthrough of psychedelics and shamanism, that science got it absolutely wrong. The universe didn't begin in a singularity. Who knows how the universe began or would even presume to judge, but the universe ends in a singularity. It has been growing more singular, more complex, more unique, more novel every passing moment since it burst into existence. And if that's true, then we represent a kind of concrescence of universal intent. We're not mere spectators or a cosmic accident or some sideshow or the Greek chorus to the main event. 
the human experience is the main event. The coordination of perception, of hope, of dream, of vision that occurs inside the human heart-mind-body interface is the most uh, complex phenomenon in the universe. Now, even the physicalists will agree that the human neocortex represents the most densely ramified matter known to exist in, in the biological world. And you don't have to be a rocket scientist to see that human society, human history, human art, human literature uh, represent things for which there is no analog in the world of wasps, groundhogs, uh, killer whales, and so forth and so on. Uh, in our species, complexity has turned inward upon itself, and in our species, time has accelerated. Time has left the gentle ebb and flow of gene transfer and adaptation that characterizes biological evolution, and instead, historical time is generated. And so I believe that science and its reluctance to deal with the psychedelic experience and the way in which science has used then law to suppress its rival, in this case, arises out of a profound discomfort on the part of science about this future state of complexification that is clearly the uh, grail, the dwell point, the end point of the human historical process. No one of us, I think, can imagine that history could go on for another thousand years. I mean, what would it look like at the current rate of population growth, spread of epidemic disease, rate of invention, connectivity, depletion of resources, the atmosphere? It is impossible to conceive of another thousand years of human history. History, then, is ending. History is a kind of gestation process. It's a kind of metamorphosis. It's an episode in the life of a species. If you think of the, the simple example of metamorphosis, that of caterpillar to butterfly, we all know that there is this intermediate resting stage where the caterpillar is, for all practical purposes, enzymatically dissolved 
Yes.
that gathers around the concept of past and future. The shaman actually rises into a domain where past and future are different areas on the same topological manifold.
about shamanism in its classical guise for a moment. It is about um, predicting weather, predicting game movement, and curing disease. If you had a prescient or extraordinary understanding of the future, each one of us would be able to do these things. Predicting the weather, you just look into next week and there it is. Predicting the movement of games, same deal. Curing the sick actually involves very judicious choice of your patients with a pre-knowledge of who will get well and who will not get well. So it's as though the members of the culture are imprisoned in linear time and the shaman is not. And why not? Because the shaman has perturbed the uh, brain state sanctioned by the culture, sanctioned by its educational processes, its habits, its uh, attitudes. And into that vacuum created by the perturbation of these cultural values rushes the raw, unanalyzed datum of reality. what Aldous Huxley called removing the reducing valve of consciousness. And suddenly, culture is seen to be a relative phenomena. The stockbroker, no different from the rainforest shaman, each somewhat similar to uh, the Trobrian Islander or the Eskimo. Culture is simply clothing upon the human experience, but the human organism outside the confines of culture in a direct relationship to nature transcends time and space. This was a fact, I believe, that was known in prehistory and in fact was the source of Paleolithic values which were not material, not linear, not surplus oriented, not class oriented, not power oriented, but rather oriented toward a kind of egalitarian partnership in, a, in an environment of great material simplicity. And human beings lived like that for probably a half a million years with poetry, with dance, with mathematics, with magic, with story, with humor, but not with the paralyzing and toxic artifacts of the late evolving machine worshipping monotheistic linear phonetic alphabet tight ass straight culture that we are a part of. So now, at a kind of moment of great cultural challenge and dynamic for Western civilization, which has for a thousand years called all the shots and shoved itself down everybody's throat, whether they liked it or not. In the last hundred years, through the science of anthropology and ethnography and ethnomedicine and botany, the news has arrived that these quote-unquote primitive people are in fact master technologies.
technicians of journeying into a world of the neurological imagination, a world we didn't even know exists, a world that is as distant to us as the world at the heart of the atom is from the rainforest fishermen. And because our own cultural values seem a little shoddy at this moment, those on the fringes of Western civilization have begun to seek alternatives, begun to look at uh, alternative religions, yoga, tantra, Buddhism, Zen, whatever, uh, alternative approaches to diet, vegetarianism, macrobiotics, so forth and so on, and alternative approaches to authentic experience, which means psychedelics. Uh, in the early stage of psychedelic involvement, everyone was sort of flying under the banner of uh, hands-on Freudianism or hands-on Jungianism. You know, we're going to see those archetypes. We're going to confront those sexual repressions. We're going to journey into those traumatic childhood memories. N now, it's understood, I think, that those metaphors were fairly inadequate and that actually we stand on the brink of an unexplored landscape of planetary size. The world of the high Paleolithic, which is a Gaian world, a world of feeling, not analytical intellectual constructs, but a world of empowered feeling, empathy, and intuitive understanding, an understanding that doesn't arise in a context of Greek logic, but in a context of animal knowing in the authentic mode of the body. So just to bring it all around here, the great exhibit which we must always keep in front of ourselves and our critics is the mystery of the human mind and body. No one knows how it is that I can command my hand to make a fist and that it will do that. I mean, that's mind over matter. That's the violation of every scientific principle in the books. And yet it is the most trivial experience any of us have. We expect to command our body. We expect the mental will to order the monkey flesh into action and it will follow. The body is the nexus of the mystery of life. And our culture takes us out of the body and sells our loyalty into political systems, into religions, into inanimate objects and machines, collections, so forth and so on. Uh, the felt experience of the body is what the psychedelics are handing back to us. That's why it's called escape, because it's escape from HBO, from walking the mall, from seeing what's on the tube, from consuming trash media. It's escape from all of that into the authenticity of the body. This is why sexuality 
is so mm, edgy in this society. They'd make it illegal if they but could figure out how. It's, it's the one drug they can't tear from our grip, and so they lay a guilt trip about it. But sexuality and psychedelics, by carrying us back to an authentic sense of the body, carry us back to the domain of authentic values. And more and more the message that people are getting as they avail themselves of the psychedelic experience is that it is not a journey into the human unconscious or into the ghost bardos of our chaotic civilization. It's a journey into the presence of the Gaian mind. that the earth is a coherent whole.
and when cultural values created by male dominance and science and linearity and so forth and so on, when those values are dissolved, what is waiting there is this incredibly poignant experience of matrix, what James Joyce called the mama matrix most mysterious, nothing more than our bodies and the earth out of which our bodies came. History, as we have lived it in the West, has been a turning of our back on that. And now, history has failed. Western cultural institutions, having become global cultural institutions, now show themselves to be adequate to inspire, lead, or carry anyone into a future worth living in. At this moment, then, this reconnecting to the Gaian mind becomes a kind of moral imperative. So this whole drug issue is not an issue even about criminal syndicates or about untaxed billions or about the mental health of our youth or any of that malarkey. I mean, my God, the most destructive drugs known to the species are peddled on every street corner without restriction. The real issue is what kind of mental worlds shall people inhabit? What kinds of hope shall be permitted? What kind of value systems shall be allowed? And the value systems that aggrandize the possession of things, the tearing up of the earth, competition, classism, racism, sexism, have led us to the brink of catastrophe. Now, I think we have to abandon cultural Western cultural values and return to the deeper wisdom of the body in connection with the plants. That's the seamless web that leads us back into the heart of nature. And if we can do this, then this very narrow neck of cultural crisis can be navigated. Very little of the past can be saved. Uh, the architectonics, the machines, the systems of monetary exchange and propaganda, the silly religions, the asinine aesthetic canons, very little of that can be saved. But what can be saved is the sense of love and caring and mutuality that we all uh, put into and take from the human enterprise. You know, there's a Grateful Dead song that says, you can't go back and you can't stand still. If the thunder don't get you, then the lightning will. And we now hold, through the possession of these psychedelics, catalysts for the human imagination of sufficient power that if we use them, we can deconstruct the lethal vehicle that is carrying us toward the brink of apocalypse. We can deconstruct that vehicle and redesign it into a kind of starship that would carry us and our children out into the broad starry galaxy we know to be waiting us. But it's a cultural test. Nature is pitiless. Intelligence is a grand experiment. 
upon which a great deal has been risked, but if it proves inadequate, nature will cover it over with the same kind of cool impunity that she covered over the dinosaurs and the trilobites and the crossopterygian fishes and all those other folks who came before. So what we must do, I think, is see our future in the imagination, catalyze the imagination, form symbiotic relationships with the plants, affirm archaic values, and spread the good news that what is out of control, what is in fact dying, is a world that had become too top-heavy with its own hubris, too bent by its own false value system, and too dehumanized to care about what happened to its own children. So I say, good riddance to it. Bring on the archaic revival, and let's create a new world. And that's it. And... wasn't perfectly clear, I'm sure the questions and answers will make it so. Let's take a half hour break. I'll, I'll sign books if anybody wants me to, and then we'll get together here for the hardcore. Thank you very, very much. Pull it together so we can get on to the fun part here. Uh, if you want copies of the tape, Todd is out front at that table. You can wander out there during the Q&A. People keep asking about his books. that I could. 
which hasn't been bad, let me tell you. Um, yes. Wait a minute, wait, wait. You're going to have to yell and then I'll repeat it. Well, this is a really interesting question. I can talk about it. I'll repeat the question. It's can I talk about the relationship of advanced mathematics to modeling of consciousness in, in layman's terms, correct? Um, one of the great mysteries still to be addressed by philosophy is why is it that numbers, which are, after all, constructs of the human mind, why is it that numbers are so incredibly powerful for the description of nature? Nature, after all, is somehow given. We find it all around us. And numbers arise in the depths of human ratiocination. So what is the relationship of these things to each other? This is, it may appear to be an, an easy question. It's such a difficult question that it wasn't even asked in philosophy until the 20th century. Uh, it's very puzzling, and I think that it indicates a fundamental congruency between processes that are mental and the structure of the world itself. Uh, this is why I didn't get into it too much tonight in a popular lecture like this, but I'm the inventor or the purveyor of a mathematical theory of consciousness. And I believe that more powerful than any atom smasher, more subtle than any space telescope, is the human mind. The human mind is the most subtle and superb of all instruments for the study and measurement of nature. When we look into ourselves, we discover the same patterns that we discover in the birth and death of a species, the flow of a river, the collapse of a corporation, or the flowering of a love affair. It's that process is somehow under the aegis of a kind of universal equation of description. So it doesn't matter whether it's the birth and death of your hope, or the rise and fall of the Assyrian Empire, or the evolution of the Pacific Ocean, processes always occur in the same way. And this is why there is congruence between the mental world of human beings and the world of abstract mathematics and the world of nature. These things are, as it were, simply different levels of condensation of the same universal stuff. This is why the concept of truth can have some meaning. I mean, when you think about it, truth, why should it even be possible for us as monkeys to entertain that notion? Where is it writ large that mammals traveling in packs should have 
any relationship to truth whatsoever. And yet the faith is that somehow thinking means something. It's not just something we do, it means something. It means something because there is sufficient freedom within the human system to be both right or wrong. And this right or wrong lays upon us the obligation of mirroring nature in models which we build in our own minds. Now the old idea in science was that these mathematical models of nature were in fact laws, truths, eternal platonic truths that were being teased out. In the 20th century, a slight epistemological sophistication leads to this word models where we say we're modeling reality. Uh, and our model is only as good as we need it to be. If we're trying to model the flight of an artillery shell, the model needs to be only good enough to get the artillery shell to its target. We don't need to understand the essence of lead or the nature of motion there. We simply need the model to kick out the data that interests us. And in the 20th century, it's been understood that all knowledge is dependent upon the question asked. And the relationship of mathematics to nature is one of the profound indicators, I think, that uh, truth can be known. Maybe not the truth, but uh, I always think of the positivist philosopher Wittgenstein, who was once asked in a classroom situation about a certain proposition, is it the truth? And he said, well, it's certainly true enough. And, you know, that's where we are with our modeling of the world and with our mathematics. It is the truest truth we know. It is true enough. Somebody else here. Yeah, in front. identity and fulfillment take on hidden meaning and can love overshadow the shadow of the hour stay with us now for heartrending contemporary drama on love of grass this is obvious world magician and the question is what is the nature of magic or what is magic or the wonder that it invokes there are two theories I mean magic is not a trivial issue at all uh, there are two theories about how the world works and each one depends on a fundamental assumption about what the world is 
there's the scientific theory, which says the world is tiny packets of matter squealing along through empty space at close to the speed of light and subject to a certain set of interlocking laws. That's what science tells us the world is. Another theory is, and to my mind, a much more appealing and even intuitively correct theory, is the world is language. The world is made of language. We can say that the world is composed of little demons doing calisthenics, each one the size of a pissant's eyebrow. Or we can say the world is made out of wave mechanical packets of matter flying along at the speed of light. But notice that what we get each time is words. Our, our, our model of what the world is is made of words, and the world is composed of description. Now, in the era before science, scientists like to say people were more epistemologically naive. What they mean by that is they didn't have a clear understanding of the division between the inside and the outside, between what we imagine and what actually is. But if you live long enough, I think you discover what we imagine and what actually is are very close to the same thing. Now, whenever you say the world is made of language, the positivists object by saying, well, then why isn't it the way we say it is? I didn't say it's the way we say it is. I said it's made of language. And uh, part of the inspiration for my career is the realization that you could get up in front of audiences and say how the world is and to a small degree, for a limited time, in a limited space, it shimmers and recasts itself and becomes the thing that we say that it is. The, the mind is somehow a co-creator in the process of reality through acts of language. And language is very, very mysterious. I mean, it is true magic. People run all over the place looking for paranormal abilities. But notice that when I speak, if your internal dictionary matches my internal dictionary, that my thoughts cross through the air as an acoustical pressure wave and are reconstructed inside your cerebral cortex as your thought, your understanding of my words. Telepathy exists. It's just that the carrier wave is small mouth noises. All so-called primitive people know that the world is made of language, that you sing it into existence, that what you, you say it is, is what it is, that it is maintained in existence by an act of rational apprehension.
And so everyone wanted to be like, like physics. Chemistry sought that. Sociology, psychology, biology. Meanwhile, physics, pursuing the exploration of matter, broke through to a domain of...